Hear the word of God from 1 John 2, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 10. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone else, anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about the things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that we, it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin." No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. Jennifer. John likes to go back and forth, so it's a tough passage to, uh, to read, but it's good. We're in First John here at Waypoint. I'm Danny, one of the pastors here, and like I mentioned earlier, uh, Pastor Lawrence will be back from his sabbatical next week, but I'm so thankful to get to preach this sermon. Um, and I have some props down here. The first prop is this. Did everybody get one? A handout. I'm the handout preacher. If you didn't get one, Ryan, raise your hand. Does everybody... Okay, Ryan right there was, is handing them out. Um, and everyone knows that when you get a handout at Waypoint, it means I'm preaching. Uh, this is even cardstock, so you could write on it, jot some notes. 
The, the good thing about this is it'll help you stay focused. The bad thing is you already know kind of where we're headed, so uh, I hope I do a good job of setting it up. But, and you're probably scared. It's an eight-point sermon. And, but actually, there's about 23 points that John brings up, and I only chose eight. So John is doing something here, and we'll learn about that. But I want to start this morning with a question. And this is a, a tough question. Now, this isn't one of my funny ones. This is actually a deep question. When you hear about blatant flaws or serious problems and issues within the church, and by the church, sometimes people say big C church, little C church. You can go back and forth. Big C church just means the church around the world, all the people. But also little C church can mean your local church and the church too. So on this, I just left it as little C, but... You guys know what I'm talking about. Just the people of God gathering together. But when you hear these flaws, these issues, when you hear about major disagreements, problems, does it make you extremely discouraged and disheartened? Maybe almost to the point where it affects your faith and your confidence in God? Or has it actually affected your faith and your confidence in God? Have you had moments or... You might be living in one now where you're, something happened, someone did something, and you're, it, it wrecks you. This is a common experience for most Christians. The emotions are strong and they're real. And this is just, and most of the time, this is just from hearing about things outside of the church. You hear about a pastor who did something or some leader, and that will affect you. But it's really, really hard from when you hear about it inside your own local community you experience it yourself or, or a local community close by, maybe a friend's church, somebody, you know, it's hard. And when these major disagreements come, it, and these, sometimes they're smaller things, just disagreements and the church that gets divided, people get angry. Sometimes they're actual blatant sins that hurt a lot of people. And, but all the times, when we hear these stories, we have different responses, but many of us respond in fear, frustration, doubt, and denying the goodness and the faithfulness of God, and even asking God, why did you set the church up this way? Why didn't you make us all robots, right? We just kind of do the right thing. This past week, I was getting my hair cut. It's a funny phrase, getting your hair cut. I was when I wrote it down, because you get your hairs cut, right? Hair, hair, sorry. Dad joke. I, I have to do one dad joke every like 15 minutes. So, uh, but I was getting my hairs cut, my haircut, and uh, the barber started sharing with me. He knows I'm a pastor. About his friend, his friend's 51 years old and dying of cancer. My barber's from like out in the country, so all his friends grew up around church, and um, but his friend didn't want anyone from the church to come and visit him. His 51 year old friend who's dying of cancer because of some deception and hurt he experienced in the church. He was vocal to my, my, my barber said, hey, you want me to send the pastor over or whatever to pray with you? It's like, I don't want anybody from the church. I don't want anything to do with the church. Um, hearing this broke my heart. And my barber just told me it as a story. He's like, pray for my friend. The good news is there was one faithful friend of this guy who has cancer that is a follower of Jesus that somehow has this good relationship and he's, he's been going over and kind of walking alongside this, this man who's, who's dying. 
But it's a common story, and I, and I, this morning I want you to know that I acknowledge that some of you, this might be part of your past, or it might even be part of your present. You're still working through this. It might be something that's happened to you directly, or you're just hearing about something going on and from leaders in the church. I didn't pick this sermon because of what's going on right now. There's some podcasts and articles going on about some fallen leaders. I didn't say, hey, how can I match First John to what's going on in the world? We're just preaching through the Bible, and guess what? The Bible relates to what's going on in the world. So God wants us to have this sermon this morning. But if this is you and you're struggling, please come talk to us. Talk to me, Pastor Lawrence, Eric, Erica, Joy. We have staff that are be our small group leaders, our elders. We, we want to walk you through this and help you deal with this. Okay, so make a promise. If, if you are struggling with your faith because of something that's either happened to you or just as you read these articles and stuff, don't go at it alone. Let us help you process. We're, we're the body together, okay? Make that promise to yourself right now. If, if you're one of these people... And you're doubting God and doubting all these things because of some of this stuff. Let, let's, let's take this opportunity to really work through it. And I, I brought this question up this morning not to stir the pot. I really just wanted to teach how John teach, is where we're at in the passage. And I believe that John is, is, first John is this letter. It's almost read like a sermon. This faithful pastor encouraging his congregation who are experiencing pain and doubt because false teachers and divisive factions have entered into their community. Sometimes I, I always hear people say, if we could just get back to the early church, everything would be okay. And they, I mean, people literally say that. They're like, we're creating a new church. And our new church that we started is going to be just like the early church. And I'm like, this is the early church. Read 1 Corinthians, read 2 Corinthians, read 1 John. They struggled too. Satan wants to destroy and make us be disunified. And God had a better plan, and, and John's trying to show his folks a better way. First John is a summary of the teachings from the Old Testament, I believe, and the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John. There's no author mentioned in First John, but almost all of us think, scholars think, that the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John wrote this first letter. There is an author for the second and the third letter of John in our Bibles. I mean, there is a mention of an author. But we believe John wrote it, John the Apostle, John the disciple of Jesus. There's one other John, John the Elder, who could have written it. Either way, it's, it, the word is still the same. It was an, a pastor in an, in an early church leading a group of probably Jewish Christians in Ephesus, around Ephesus, these, these local churches there. And he's exhorting them and encouraging them in their present context. Um, let me read something from Douglas Moo, New Testament scholar, and he just kind of sums up 1 John. And I think this will set the stage so I don't have to mention this for, you know, for the rest of the sermon. It's really good. He says, these letters, this is from Douglas Moo, these letters provide a snapshot. Sorry, wow, that's really small. All right, hopefully you guys can just, just hear me as, as we're reading it. These letters provide a snapshot of life in these churches. They reflect an unhappy time in the life of the Christian community to which John addressed them, a time of dispute involving, involving both theological and behavioral concerns. We have those even now, right? 
It seems that sometime after the writing of John's Gospels, difficulties arose within this community. Some of the members espoused beliefs about the person and work of Jesus Christ that were unacceptable, denying that Jesus Christ, Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, uh, come in the flesh, and denying also it would appear that his death was necessary to provide the forgiveness of sins. A sharp disagreement arose, and those who embraced these views uh, succeeded from the community. Seceded from the community. The cessationalists were not content to keep their beliefs to themselves. Some of them became itinerant preachers who circulated among the churches and propagated their beliefs. This created confusion among those who remained loyal to the gospel as proclaimed by the eyewitnesses at the beginning. As a result, some began to question whether they really knew God, were experiencing eternal life, and were in the truth. You see, this is the background of why John is repeating this stuff. First, John was written to bolster their assurance by providing criteria they could use to evaluate the spurious claims of the cessationists and with which they could reassure themselves. This letter appears to have been sent as a circular letter to the churches affected by the teaching of the cessationists. And as a follow-up to this circular letter, John wrote two other letters. Second John warns a specific church about false false teaching. This is kind of warning all the churches. And second and third John show how that the churches should provide hospitality to the, to the visiting preachers who are coming around that are not the false teachers. Just because the false teachers has messed things up doesn't mean that you need to stop providing hospitality. So that's the background, First John. Now I'm going to read one more paragraph by Moo of how First John is structured. I'm just trying to set the pace here so that when I get to this stuff, you, you've got the background. The way 1 John is structured is unusual. That is, it does not follow a linear plan moving logically from one subject to the next. Actually, Romans does this. There's about three Old Testament letters that do this, but we all think that all of them do this. But most of them don't. But instead, it revisits the same subjects over and over, each time amplifying them further in what has been called a spiraling structure. This is so because... First uh, John does not, do, does not seek to prove anything, but rather repetition seeks to increase the reader's adherence to know truths of the gospel in the face of the threat posed by the cessationist teaching. So John is just trying to say, the stuff you already knew, the good news that's proclaimed in my gospel, I'm just trying to reinforce that. And then First John, like the rest of the Bible, contains something we around here at Waypoint talk about a lot. Biblical tension. And you ever hung out with Lawrence for more than 15 minutes? Pastor Lawrence, you might hear that word. And it's not because he loves a good debate. He does. But I don't know. But it's, it's because it's there. Because we're called to work out and flesh out being God's community together. And it's tough. We get the principles, but we don't get the exact things to do so that the gospel can transcend all cultures for all time. In 1 John 2, 7 and 8, this is the passage, part of the passage we read last week. I want you to see the, see the tension. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have heard since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. See the paradox? I'm not writing you a new command, yet I'm writing you a new command. 
And if you, the rest of the book of 1 John does this over and over again. It's like walk in the light, but if you fall, you're not in the light. But if you accept Jesus' forgiveness, you're in the light. You see? You see what John's doing? He goes back and forth with the promises of God, then how we're to trust and obey those promises, and then warnings of what will happen if we don't obey those promises, and then the reminder of the promises that will allow us to obey the promises. So you see what John's doing? So we can do that too. That's okay. When someone comes to me, I don't have to have an exact answer. I don't want to be that wise guy that you ask me a question and I well, what do you think? You know, I don't I, like it's not a smart aleck isn't the goal of this. The goal is to say, God, we, we're figuring this thing out. He didn't give exact specific details for everything because the church was going to go into all these cultures for all these different times. The, the Internet wasn't around for the first, you know, 1960 years of the church. So stuff we deal with now as the Internet generation they didn't have to deal with before. But the principles that were written in the Old and New Testament can help us navigate even church today in the internet age. They never had to worry, should we live stream or not? How, good, how much should we focus on the quality of the live stream versus the quality of the in-person service? You know, John, that, if that was in the Bible, it wouldn't have made any sense until, until, you know, until recently. So, but there are principles that help us make decisions, but that's why we disagree. There are different churches in the triangle, and, and I have friends who disagree on how to use the internet for church. doesn't mean they're heretics, just means we're disagreeing on stuff because the Bible gave us principles so that we could be the church anytime in any culture. And that's so the good news is, is it, it can transcend all the cultures. The bad news is we're going to disagree, and we've got to learn to be unified in those disagreements. And before I move on to this, I want to address the, the two elephants in the room. The passage talks about the last hour and the Antichrist. So for the Antichrist, I'm going to bring a prop. But the last hour. So the last hour is just the period from the coming of Jesus to his second coming. Yes, I know if you grew up in the 80s and 90s like I did, you heard a lot more about the last hour than that. That's why John thought it was the last hour then. Now, did John and Paul think that the second coming of Christ was probably closer than 2,000 years? Yes. You can probably get that from their writings. But they also knew that between Abraham and Jesus was about 2,000 years. So they weren't, they, they known that it didn't have to be right away. So when, when John says the last hour there, he's talking about this is the period of time um, before Jesus returns. And if you read Acts 2, Peter quotes uh, Joel, and he says, in the last days. So he's calling the last days the day of Pentecost, and we're still in those last days. So it's, it's a biblical term. It means the period of time right now before Jesus returns. It doesn't, it, there's, there's a lot of speculation. And then Antichrist. This one even has more speculation. So I'm going to pull out this chart. So my great uncle gave me this chart. He bought it at a church. And I grew up in the 80s, and this is like an overview of the Bible and it just, it's good, but it keeps going and going, and it's good. It lines up with the Bible here, but then at the end, it's got all this stuff about the Antichrist and what's going to happen, as if this is like the same as all this. We know all this is true because it's in the Bible, but this chart makes it like all this stuff is going to happen exactly this way, and the Antichrist 
Even though the only time the Antichrist is mentioned in the whole Bible, I'm not being sacrilegious, this isn't the Bible. This is a cool chart. I've saved it all these years, so I'm not against it. I just, I'm kind of against that last part that tells me what the Antichrist is. But uh, who is the Antichrist? You know, John's the only person, actually most scholars think John invents the word. Like, the Antichrist in the famous passage in Revelation 13, it doesn't say the name Antichrist. Even in the first Thessalonians passage, a lot of people refer to, Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. So, I don't know exactly. In, in Revelation, this Antichrist is more like a spirit that enters into, brings evil into the world, not an actual human. But, but John says the Antichrist, but then he says anyone who's against Christ is an Antichrist. So I'm going to talk about why John does that here and, and what he's doing. But all I'm saying is, you know, be careful. You, there's a lot of teaching out there. We're going to actually do Revelation in the fall. So we're going to cover a lot of this. All right? So get ready. Good, good stuff. But John thinks that anyone who denies Christ is an Antichrist. So I'm not going to get into the big thing. I'm going to show you a couple things that the, the, the early church definitely thought that, there was, that Satan would use one guy or a group of evil people to really to try to destroy the church. Uh, John seems to distinguish that there might be this figure that 1st, 2nd Thessalonians and Revelation 13 refer to, but they don't call this figure the Antichrist. Only John uses that term. Both the Antichrist and the Antichrist are around to deceive people, and maybe even Jesus refers to this in Matthew. Um, but John actually calls people in the community Antichrist. He's not, those people weren't this guy, you know, because they are dead. So, I mean, when I was a kid, it was like Saddam Hussein's Antichrist. Like, it was like every new leader who rose up, like, I came to church and they told me that this guy was the Antichrist and it was over. And, and I, they were good people. They taught me the Bible. They were just trying to, they were just trying to figure it out. I'm not, I'm not making fun of them. I, I mean, it feels like I am, but I'm really not. They were good people. They taught me the Bible. They just felt like because things were going on in the world, that it must be what John is talking about. And generally, John is, is, is trying to talk about those people right now who are against Christ, that they're acting like Satan. They're agents of Satan. Even Jesus to Peter says, get behind me, Satan. So Satan is trying to infiltrate the church. All right. So in the end, John is trying to say to them, don't let the false teachings, the divisiveness, the, the hurt, the, the disagreements, whether they're really false heresy or just you know, disagreements, sharp disagreements, cause you to doubt or deny the faithfulness of God and Messiah Jesus. That's what I believe John is doing here. Now, John in this section is also addressing those who are the Antichrist. But I'm only focusing on the promises. Most of the time in John, he goes back and forth, like the truth, the promise, like why you should obey it, what happens when you don't obey it, and what God did so that you'll be judged if you don't obey it, but if you want to get back and start obeying it again, God's faithfulness to get you back to it. This morning, I only want to focus on the promises. Eric talked about some of the, the back and forth. But I want to focus on eight promises in this passage. 
And I wrote on here, you can read this on your card. How do we not let divisiveness, sinfulness, and false teachings in the church cause us to doubt or deny the faithfulness of God and Messiah Jesus? And I chose the word Messiah instead of Christ. It's the same word. Christ is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word intentionally. Let these eight truths from 1 John penetrate our hearts and minds. So if you want one tool when you hear these stories and you get discouraged, whether it happens to you or you hear about a past famous pastor or somebody does something, John gives us eight things that promises of God that we can reflect on. So I want that to be all we focus on for the rest of this morning. The first one, the anointed one, which you know the anointed one is the word Messiah, has anointed us. And if anybody noticed the title of the sermon, we've been messiahed by the Messiah. A little play on words. Messiah is a word I made up. The Hebrew word Messiah, Messiah is the word to pour oil on something. It's used throughout the Bible. It shows up like when they anointed the priests. The, the noun Messiah shows up a little later in Psalms and in Daniel 9 as this anointed one. The theology of the Messiah isn't, isn't very, you know, is, is, is not really developed in the Old Testament. But they were anticipating this Messiah, and, and the gospel writers make it clear that Jesus is the Messiah that they were anticipating. So it just means to pour oil, and that was a ceremony to mean that this person was set apart for some religious or government purpose. Jesus, David was anointed to, when he was king. The priests were anointed. Jesus is the anointed one. So the anointed one, the Messiah, has anointed us. I want us to think about this. What's the main, and anointing means we're filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the main way in the rest of the New Testament letters it tells us, it refers to the Holy Spirit? Does it use the term anointing? It doesn't. Only here, one time Paul uses it, and John uses it four times here, or three times here. John's intentional on this. He could just say, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's even what he says at the end of the letter. He refers, he doesn't even mention Holy Spirit by name here, and I think that's intentional. Because John is trying to use this term anointing, and he uses this word holy one for Jesus, which is an Old Testament term that's only used and it, it, we definitely know it's a reference to Jesus from John's gospel. I think it's chapter 6. Um, there's two times Jesus is called Holy One, and, the, and, and one of them is the demon calls him that, uh, I think early in Luke. But Peter calls him. He says, no, you're the Holy One of Israel. So we have this anointing from the Holy One. We've been Messiahed by the Messiah. We've been anointed now, I want you to just take a deep breath and think about this. God has anointed you. You are the king. You are part of the royal family. This is good news. In 2 Corinthians, this is the only other time, it, like I said, in the New Testament, it uses this terminology to describe us being filled with the Spirit. It says, It is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 
And why does John use the term anointing here? Well, what does the word if antichrist mean? Anti-Messiah. Christ is the, remember I said Christ is the word, the Greek word for Messiah. So basically the ones who are not anointed. He's making a contrast here. John could have said, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. He says that later in the letter. He wants them to know, see the contrast between the two. Those who are against Christ are denying this anointing. But you are the anointed ones. Be the anointed ones. It's good news. Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ is the Antichrist. But John's saying, but come back. Be the anointed one. Don't be the one against the anointing. Don't be the one against Christ. The second point on here. So, so, let, so just praise God that the anointed one has anointed you. The second thing on here, we have the spirit and we have all things. In choosing to deny Jesus, sorry, um, it says in, in 1 John chapter 2, it says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointed teachers, you, sorry, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Again, he just keeps going back to teachings from, from the Gospel of John. I think what we can remember here is we have the Spirit and we have all things. We have everything we need to follow Christ. This does not mean that your personal interpretations are ultimate truth. So as you read the Bible and you feel, it doesn't mean that your personal interpretations are ultimate truth. It means that you have the truth about Jesus the Messiah and you are anointed and filled with this Holy Spirit as a guide and you have all you need to know and obey Christ. A lot of people, I think especially Americans, we say, thanks God for your help. Now I'll take it from here. And I'm, I'm the arbiter of all truth. My interpretation of the scripture now trumps everything else. That isn't what all things, all truth means here or in the Gospel of John. But what it does mean is we have all the things we need and all the truth we need to follow Christ and to obey him and to be part of his community and to notice when things are off and to work through that. And that's what John is doing here. Remember that. Having all things in the truth isn't to make you arrogant, to make you proud. It's so that we can be delight in God and just know that we have everything we need. So even if things start falling apart, we know that God's given us everything we need to know him and to love him and to be part of the community, even when other parts of the community start breaking down. Number three, in Jesus, we can be confident and unashamed. In 1 John 2, 28, he says, And now, my dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Shame and guilt follow many of us. I've counseled many, many Christians who live with shame and guilt for a long time. I've counseled many people who've walked away from the church because of shame and guilt. I felt it. And the brokenness of and the sin in the church by leaders and other people in the church hasn't helped the cause. But as anointed ones, John is reminding his people and he's reminding us 
that we can be confident and unashamed before the King of Kings. If you knew that the President of the United States, like let's say you got into some legal trouble, who's the only person who can pretty much pardon anything? If you knew that no matter what happened, you were gonna get a pardon, you'd feel pretty good going into the court case, right? Because you know, you know you're not guilty and you know that the highest person is, is, has cleared you. Well, guess what? The King of Kings, the creator of the universe, we can stand before him confident and unashamed because of the work of Christ. It's good news. Oh man, the next one. God has lavished his love on us. The NIV uses lavish or given in other translations. Either way, God's love is on us. It's good news. I don't even have to preach on that. Just remember that. God's love is on you. When you're struggling, God's love is on you. He's la he lavished his love on you. Then, right after that, 1 John 2, I mean 3, 1 and 2, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that they did not know him. Dear friends, we are now children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. So he's saying, you can have confidence that you're a child of God now, but even when things don't make sense, they will make sense one day. We get both. And even when the word doesn't make sense in the world's structures and systems, you can still be confident you're a child of God and you're doing the right thing for God. Now again, don't break the other commands and start taking the matters into your own hands. As you obey Christ, as you live in community, as you're humble, as you're following the Sermon on the Mount, trying to say, I want to be a Christ follower, you, you accept your role as child of God and, and you can live in this world in confidence. It's good news, guys. Number six. All right, let me go back to that. So child of God, confidence. We have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Who... Who gets to sit on the lap of, of the president? His grandkids, right? Uh, even his chief of staff doesn't get that kind of intimacy. I stole that from some pastor. I've heard that somewhere along the way. But, but you know, we get intimacy with God because he loved us. We didn't do anything. We actually rebelled against him. Number six, we can put our hope in the truth that Jesus is coming and we will be like him. Now, I don't normally like to have eight points in the sermon, but John has 20 points in this sermon, so I scaled it down to eight. But this is good news, guys. Jesus is coming. He's going to make all things right. But even right now, the confidence that he's going to make all things right and he's with us and that we're going to be like him, like all our brokenness, whether it's like physical, like we made a joke this morning that I shouldn't join the choir because I would just... Gina is our choir director now, and the choir had practice yesterday, and things are going well, and I, I would ruin it, because my voice would cause a breakdown of, of, of tune, and of melody, and whatever, the harmonies, and all that. But one day, God will come back and make my voice right, and he'll make me right, and all, all the sin, and all the brokenness, all the things you desire, all the things you want to do, all the things you didn't get are going to come true in Christ. And we get to be like him. Number seven. 
Jesus came to purify us. Earlier in the letter, we already learned that he came to take away our sins and purify us. He says in verse three, chapter 3, verse 3, all who have this hope, the hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Good news, all the junk is being, will be, and you're going to be clean of it. It's happening right now. And the junk you might do tomorrow, it's, it's being clean. You're, the brokenness, you're being made new. I, I'll fix computers sometimes, and sometimes you just call. I was doing a computer yesterday, and the guy's like, you just got to restart it. You literally, he's like, the only thing, I was on the phone with the service guy, and he's like, the only thing you can do is restart it. That's the only way you'll get this to work, is literally wipe the hard drive and start over. And God does that for us. And he'll do it again and again. He's making us pure. And this is good news, guys. This is our hope. That our brokenness doesn't define us. But Jesus makes us pure. Calling on him as Lord and Savior, trusting in him makes us pure and holy. Final one. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Sometimes we as Christians... American Christians, we think about Jesus coming and he takes away my sin so that I could go to heaven. Like that's why Jesus came. And that Jesus did come for that purpose, but he came. What he came to do was cosmic. He came to destroy evil and to destroy death and to destroy the works of the devil. And part of that is we're saved and we get to be made pure in him. But what I want us to think about what Jesus did, what happened on the cross and through the resurrection and through his ascension and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is that the powers and the darkness, the powers of this world and, and these principalities, we put up Ephesians 6 where Paul gives us a little summary of this. He says our struggle, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and authorities, against powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Jesus came to destroy all this. And until he comes back, it's not fully finished. And that's the tension we live in. But right now, we can live in the hope that we're part of this redemption. Let's, I'm going to do one summary of 1 John. The, John like, weaves a bunch of different themes, but this is one of them. Follow me. Jesus gave himself to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins so that if we confess our sins, God forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This comes from 1 John 1.9 and 2.12. Having given himself as the atoning sacrifice, Jesus now acts as our advocate with the Father if we sin. 1 John 2.1. He was revealed to destroy the devil's works. 1 John 3.8. And he protects us from the evil one. 1 John 5.18. See what John's trying to do? trying to let them know that nothing can hurt you because of who you are in Christ. God came to destroy all the evil, all the brokenness in you, in the church, everywhere. Like God is making things new. I brought these books. So I'm going to end with this. So this first book, so years ago I was selling a computer on Craigslist. I sold it to the, this lady who was really chatty. 
she just was talking and talking. And she told me she used to be a secretary in a church. And the church grew really fast. It went from like a small church to a big church. And she was there in the early years. And then she started, she saw some corruption, some pride, some financial mishandlings, a bunch of stuff. And she was caught, she confronted the pastor and it was a mess. Because he was, he, even though he started off genuine, he became prideful. And so she, she's like, hey, if anybody, she knew I was a pastor. She's like, I don't want to go to church right now. I'm coming back. I'm coming back soon. But right now I'm still struggling. But she's like, this book really helped me. So she just hands me this book. And she's like, if anybody's struggling, give them this book. Well, I picked up this book on my bookshelf. And the first guy to endorse this book is one of the pastors who just recently had a big mess, you know, who read the book and then five years after reading the book, started doing the very things that the book told him he shouldn't do. Then on my bookshelf, randomly, I saw this book, Profiles and Courage by John F. Kennedy. He wrote this book when he was a senator about integrity in political office while he was committing multiple affairs. <laughs> you know, it's, it's in the church, it's in the world. Leaders will get power and fall. I, I hope I don't. I hope. Pray for me and, and call me out when you see me acting like a jerk or anything I'm doing. Lawrence, call us out early so that this doesn't happen. But don't let brokenness in the church or disagreements cause you to walk away from the goodness of God. That is one of John's major warnings, and I want that to be what we remember this morning. Okay? Let's delight in him. Let's pray. God, you are good. I dumped a lot of stuff because John gives us a lot of stuff to, deal, to ponder. But every one of these truths shows that you love us and you provided a better way. And no matter how broken the church is, you still love your church and you're working in her and through her to build your kingdom. God, may we be people who are humble and follow you and trust you. And God, we just give you all the praise. God, help us to do this. Fill us with your spirit. May we identify sin and say, we don't want to walk in the darkness. We want to walk in the light. May we all do that together as we trust you with each day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.